This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. An explosion ripping through city streets in northwest China. 31 are dead with seven injured. Local authorities cite a gas leak for the tragedy, but the incident is one of several gas and chemical blasts in recent years, with reports hinting that corruption and poor government supervision are to blame. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A deafening blast shook the streets of a city in northwest China Wednesday. A local barbecue restaurant in Yinchuan City burst into flames following a gas explosion. Footage shows the blaze engulfing the building's facade, with plumes of black smoke billowing into the sky. According to China state-run news agency Xinhua, at least 31 are dead, including both high school students and retirees. Among the seven hospitalized, one is in critical condition. Six others are being treated for burns and cuts from broken glass. The explosion occurred on the eve of a holiday weekend, right in the middle of a dinner rush. Local authorities said two restaurant staffers noticed the smell of gas shortly before the blast. After discovering a broken valve on the petroleum tank, they decided to take the risk to replace it. That's when the explosion ignited. Nine people have been arrested in connection with the incident. The restaurant's manager, employees and shareholders. Their assets have also been frozen. The restaurant was well-known locally with a loyal following. Its popularity surged after China lifted its zero COVID-19 lockdown policy. Accidents due to gas and chemical blasts are common occurrences in China. Aside from cost-cutting measures, they are oftentimes caused by corruption and poor government supervision. Earlier this month, a gas leak prompted a blast at a community store in Inner Mongolia, causing two deaths and leaving four others injured. In 2015, an explosion at a chemical warehouse in the port city of Tianjin killed 173 people, marking one of the deadliest industrial accidents in Chinese history. A number of authorities in charge were found guilty of taking bribes in exchange for ignoring safety standards. Beijing is firing back at Washington, responding to a remark from President Biden calling Chinese leader Xi Jinping a dictator. The Chinese embassy released a statement Thursday urging the U.S. to immediately take action, warning that, quote, otherwise it will have to bear all the consequences. NTD reached out to the White House but did not receive a response before airtime. On Wednesday, the State Department weighed in after China's foreign ministry condemned Biden's comment. We won't hesitate to uh, call out areas where we disagree or to be blunt uh, and forthright about some of these differences. Here's a quick refresh on what happened. President Biden called Chinese leader Xi Jinping a dictator during a fundraiser event in California Tuesday. He said he got upset when Biden ordered U.S. troops to shoot down a Chinese balloon in February, adding that was because he didn't know it was there. The balloon, accused of spying on the U.S., made headlines as it flew over American soil, including sensitive military sites. Biden also described it as, quote, a great embarrassment for dictators when they didn't know what happened. 
Biden's remark launched a firestorm, coming just 24 hours after America's top diplomat visited China. The trip had been delayed for months over the spy balloon incident and was supposed to give both superpowers talking again to avoid a possible worst-case scenario. Reactions are pouring in after President Biden's remark. Here's the New Zealand Prime Minister's takeaway. The form of government that um, the China has is a matter for the Chinese people. Do they have a say? Um, if, they, if they wanted to change their system of government, then that would be a matter for them. Hipkins is set to visit China in just three days to lead a group including representatives from some of New Zealand's biggest companies. Over on Capitol Hill... Well, look, I'd say he has many, many autocratic tendencies. Uh, they are not an open and full-fledged democracy, to say the least. As for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she said it's critical for both sides to maintain communication to clear up miscalculations, adding that the U.S. and China need to work together where possible. U.S. President Joe Biden rolled out the red carpet on Thursday, welcoming Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to the White House for meetings, a joint press conference, and a lavish state dinner. The two leaders are launching new partnerships in defense and technology, with the U.S. looking to woo the world's new most populous nation. Let's zoom in. The President of the United States. I've long believed that the relationship between the United States and India is one of the, will be one of the defining relationships of the 21st century. Two proud nations, two proud nations whose love of freedom secured our independence. Thousands gathered on the White House South Lawn on Thursday morning. Biden treated Modi to a colorful arrival ceremony. Prime Minister Modi, welcome back to the White House. The challenges and opportunities facing the world in this century require that India and the United States work and lead together, and we are. In the post-COVID era, the world order is taking a new shape. In this time period, the friendship between India and the U.S. will be instrumental in enhancing the strength of the whole world. Modi has been to the U.S. five times since becoming prime minister nine years ago. But the trip is his first state visit with full diplomatic status. Modi said the visit honored the people of his country. In welcoming the Indian leader to the Oval Office, Biden said it was important to build their partnership through small steps. Those small steps have transformed uh, into large progress. All eyes are on the two largest democracies in the world, India and America. I believe that our strategic partnership is important. Aside from the diplomatic talks, here's what Modi's visit means for the U.S. First, Washington wants India to act as a strategic counterweight to China. And Modi is seeking to raise India's influence on the global stage, with his country now the world's most populous at 1.4 billion. India is an alternative to China with more population and a growing economy. And considering ideology, India is more aligned with the West. The major deals to be made? An agreement to build fighter jet engines in India, and the sale of U.S.-made armed drones to India. These aircraft will help detect and counter moves by China's military along the country's shared border. Also, a nearly $2.8 billion deal with microchip producer Micron, the largest in the U.S., to build a semiconductor assembly facility in India. That could help rebalance semiconductor supply chains away from China. 
The Biden administration is also looking to ease visa restrictions for skilled Indian workers to make it easier for them to live and work in the U.S. On Wednesday, the Indian leader met with top U.S. business leaders in Washington. We will be announcing soon a new innovation center in India uh, with applied materials. We really look forward to greater opportunities uh, in India. NTD News. More American companies may be on the chopping block in China. Regulators in China's financial hub Shanghai summoned three firms earlier this week, including Starbucks and Shake Shack. The city's cyberspace regulator said Wednesday that the summons was due to the companies collecting excessive personal information. In a statement, it urged the firms to protect personal information and safeguard consumers' rights and interests. The news comes not long after Chinese police raided the Beijing-based offices of U.S. consulting firm Bain & Company and due diligence firm Mintz. Both were previously hired by U.S. investors to gather info on certain Chinese companies, something Beijing may view as concerning. What's more, Starbucks CEO recently visited several of the company's China stores in Beijing and Shanghai, marking his first overseas trip since he took the role in March. But with Starbucks and Shake Shack now in similar crosshairs, it suggests the Chinese regime's clampdown on foreign firms could be expanding, even to companies that are fully friendly to China. The Shanghai regulator says Shake Shack has made initial improvements and Starbucks is actively making adjustments. America's most advanced microchips are being spotted in an underground Chinese market. The Biden administration has restricted NVIDIA from selling its H100 and A100 chips to China since last September for national security concerns. The advanced chips are used in cutting-edge computing systems, including iPhones, cars and military weapons. So how did the Chinese market get the restricted chips? And what consequences might the U.S. face because of it? An expert sheds light on the case. Zooming in on southern China to the nation's economic hub, a sub-district of the city of Shenzhen, Huachang Bay, is famed for the variety of electronic goods sold there. But journalists from Reuters discovered something unexpected there. Illegal transactions, superchips, made by American microchip giant NVIDIA. The company's A100 and H100 chips are blocked from being sold to China and Hong Kong as of last September. But now they're up for grabs in this Chinese market. Ethan Yang, adjunct research fellow at AIER, is also the host of the AIER Authors Corner podcast. He broke down the details of the find. Some of the major issues that are surrounding these, these uh, semiconductor chips is that they can be used for artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence can be used to create advanced military weapons that, you know, in a clash with the U.S. could, be, could hurt our own soldiers. Uh, they can hurt our allies. It can lead to um, increased surveillance capabilities. According to the vendors, these chips are sold for approximately double their standard price, around $20,000 each, with no warranty or support. Even though the deal seems unfriendly, there are still buyers who are discreetly on the hunt for the superchips. These buyers are quite diverse. They can range from small startups, um, perhaps uh, large companies that get them through third parties. How did the Chinese vendors procure the chips? Yang expressed that third-party transactions are to blame. Now the U.S. Commerce Department says it's investigating, but didn't give further details. Popularity and notable profits are the likely factors driving the underground chip market. As for potential impacts, 
Yang says it's not a major concern because of the relatively limited numbers of chips that China can get its hands on. The Chinese can use these to process infinitesimally more amounts of information. So if they want to spy on more people, they can do that much easier if they have access to these uh, advanced chips. Um, so right now, it's not a huge issue because there's just so few of these chips being sold. Uh, but everyone's rightly concerned because if this continues or continues to get out of hand, uh, we may be seeing some severe issues uh, when it comes to our own ability to compete with the Chinese. China's ambitions to develop its own semiconductor supply and AI system are growing. Coupled with accusations against Beijing for intellectual property theft, the chips leak may be something to keep an eye on. Leaving behind a life of privilege, a young Chinese elite made his way to the U.S. He says he came in search of inner peace and freedom. We sat down with Nan Feng, the former vice president of a Chinese gaming company, to find out what was behind his decision. A millennial by birth, Nan Feng said he used to be an idealist, aspiring to make a difference in China's gaming sector. I was in China's video game industry for about 12 years. I worked my way up from a designer to the top position, the deputy CEO of a game company with around 300 to 400 employees. For all his status and wealth, Nan soon realized there was little he can do to bring about change. As he put it, games project the strains of real-world society. The game I want to make differs from what the industry is asking for. In China, people don't play games per se. They neither enjoy the game playing, nor do they explore the world the game builds. What they are interested in is the hatred between each other, keeping up with the Joneses, and seeing who is more powerful. The online gaming business is a highly lucrative one in China, sometimes with tens of millions of dollars traded through a single game each month. Yet, behind the boom, Nan says there's something unsavory. He explained capitalism has turned some platforms into vehicles for money laundering. People with ties to recharge platforms would invest in a game, or simply hire the game's team. Then they dump their money into their own game, that is, to launder the cash flow. Five million, fifty million, five hundred million, whatever the amount is. The money just goes from their left pocket into their right pocket. Vicious competition is also rampant in the sector, tied to practices like manipulating app store rankings. Some companies even divide the loot with Communist Party officials. Others push Beijing's propaganda in their products. Internet giants like Tencent and NetEase, which I know of, almost all have a party branch, or the CCP's cyberspace regulator built in. When I visited Tencent's headquarters in 2014 or 2015, an entire floor above the CEO's office was staffed by officials from the cyberspace regulator and the Communist Party branch. As a Christian, Nan says he felt the heaviest problem is the Chinese Communist Party's stranglehold on faith. At one of his prayer meetings, he was asked to pray for his country and then for Communist Party leader Xi Jinping. I found it absurd because it wasn't written that way in the Bible at all. I asked another Christian, who taught you to pray like that? He said he learned it from a seminary in Nanjing. That means all clergy and those who take courses there are taught this template and spread it to others. Nan brought his family to the U.S. last December. He also described other changes in his life. Most people in China are mentally stressed, but when I came to the U.S., I found people around me in a rather relaxed state of mind. I found the inner peace I was looking for, so I stopped cursing. Since I wasn't paying attention to the things that made me anxious, I had no reason to smoke. He pondered what makes the two societies so different.
Maybe it's because of the faith-based environment here, no matter what religion you are. It allows you to look for answers. But in China, if you seek answers, you end up with communism. One naturally gets sick learning that, because you don't have the freedom of choice or the freedom of thought. Nan is one of the many Chinese who joined the Run Movement, a coded way of talking about running away from communist China and migrating elsewhere. The buzzword, originally meaning moist in Chinese, started trending as political controls heightened during the country's COVID-19 lockdowns. Coming up, a new revelation. A Chinese intelligence agency quietly operates service centers in seven American cities. And all of them have had contact with Beijing's National Police Authority. That's according to state media reports and government records reviewed by the Daily Caller News Foundation. Is this latest development tied to the Chinese police station that was shut down in downtown Manhattan a few months earlier? They're trying to standardize the way that all these different areas would develop and remain you know, sort of uh, as, as uh, satellites within the CCP's orbit. We sat down with Philip Lenzicki, investigative reporter and author of the Daily Caller Report for details. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Are even more Chinese law enforcement agencies operating on U.S. soil? And how long have they been there? A new investigative report reveals so-called Chinese service centers in seven American cities, with evidence suggesting such practices date back almost a decade to the launch of a broader global influence strategy. We sat down with Philip Lanzicki, investigative reporter for the Daily Caller News Foundation, for more. Philip Lenzicki, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Stephanie. Nice to see you. So you recently wrote a piece titled Chinese Intel Arm Quietly Operates Service Centers in Seven U.S. Cities. To begin, any relation to the Chinese police station that was shut down over the noodle shop in Manhattan? Um, there are definitely uh, some areas of overlap. And so um, as we've reported, um, for instance, one of the uh, centers that are part of these 60 overseas Chinese service centers. For instance, in Ireland, that's one that we identified, but there happen to be others. Um, also is using um, apparently um, the Fuzhou or Fujianese um, program as well. And so um, there are photos that show that, in fact, you know, I've tweeted out that uh, show it's um, uh, relationship between the two. They actually have a sign outside their um, offices that says Overseas Chinese Service Center, and it also says, um, I believe, you know, Fuzhou Overseas Police Station or something like that. And Philip, in terms of the seven in the states, these service centers, what exactly do they do? We need to think about the way that they present themselves versus um, what is kind of going on behind the scenes. So as to the, the first point, um, what they would say and what you know the uh, representatives from the Chinese embassy have said um, are that they perform some type of um, uh, support for the community, um, that they protect the legitimate rights of overseas Chinese, that they um, are constituted by, quote unquote, warm-hearted overseas volunteers, that they don't have any connection with the Chinese government. And um, that's sort of its outward face. Um, if you go one level deeper, what we see is that they have been 
tasked with something called uh, consular protection. And um, this really runs the gamut um, from uh, performing these types of uh, consular activities, supporting uh, embassies and consulates with processing visas and whatnot, um, all the way to actually uh, performing um, armed patrols, as we've seen uh, with, for instance, centers in uh, South Africa and elsewhere. And even if you go a level deeper, then there are what are its um, maybe unstated uh, purposes. And so that was how we might get into the area of the overlap potentially between these uh, locations and what we see in uh, New York. And Philip, in terms of these service centers, you note in your piece that they're at the heart of a larger CCP global influence strategy known as the Eight Great Plans for Benefiting Overseas Chinese. So tell us about that. What happened was that at first in uh, January of uh, 2014, I believe, um, this plan was announced. Um, approximately six months later, in June of 2014, they finally uh, sort of unveiled uh, in full this eight great plans uh, for benefiting overseas Chinese, of which the overseas Chinese service stations, um, pardon me, service centers are but one component. They're trying to remedy uh, the logistics side of that at one level, trying to figure out how to not only keep uh, uh, Chinese that are working in, 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 in far-flung countries within the fold of the Chinese Communist Party, um, but they're also trying to, um, I think, keep tabs on them. And so this plan that, they're, that they concocted uh, is trying to serve uh, something that was already underway. So there were different uh, organizations at that point that were different levels of development, if you will. And I think they're trying to standardize the way that all these different areas would develop and remain you know, sort of uh, as, as uh, satellites within the CCP's orbit. Um, and so as it's gone forward, there's been a little bit more of an effort, I think, to try and make it so that these uh, different uh, um, overseas Chinese service centers that have been brought in are um, on the same page and that they're getting the same type of uh, Chinese government-backed um, uh, services. Well, back to these overseas Chinese service centers. In your reporting, what was the most surprising part of this that you found? There is just this uh, total disconnect between um, the way that they're uh, presented in um, the English language you know, media uh, versus what we can find in, in, in open source Chinese media or even Chinese government documents. There uh, is such a disconnect. It's night and day. Um, and, and that is, is extremely stark uh, and, and concerning because it really speaks to um, just how flagrant this is at, at one level, how they, how apparently the Chinese government is aware that we're not looking in this direction or we don't have the competency to look in this direction. That's very concerning. Um, and there's something also uh, very concerning regarding the fact that um, there are no doubt um, many, many, many uh, Chinese language speakers from um, uh, China now living in the West um, that could pick this information up and, and, and bring it to the attention of authorities. And in terms of concerned citizens in America, how, they, how can they go about learning that, those kind of two messages coming out? Um, we're, we're going to need to um, increase our uh, competency of Chinese language and culture. And um, this is something that, you know, is a generational issue. For instance, um, when I was living in China, apparently there were, I think, 15,000 uh, American students. And uh, now I, I'm told something like 300 students are studying Chinese language. 
and whatnot in China. It's incumbent upon our, our government to sort of uh, figure out a way to, uh, you know, pick this information up. Philip Linziki, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany Meyer. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.